0: Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today my guest is Mary DeMuth, the author of The Most Misunderstood Women of the
1: Bible. Mary, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So great to be here.
0: Now, I'm very interested in the title. The title is very clear. Uh, You know what you're getting into right from the beginning, Uh, but give me a little bit more than that give the listener sort of an overview of what this book is about.
1: So a couple of years ago, I went through a kind of a valley of misunderstanding with a friend and it was so painful. And I realized as I shared, um, you know, just with a close circle of friends that a lot of people have had that same experience throughout their lives. We've all been misunderstood. And then um, a couple of years ago, I started reading the Bible rapidly every two or three months. And I was realizing that a lot of these women in the Bible I had heard sermons about, but they were differing from just a boring, plain reading of scripture. And so I combined the two ideas of the idea of being misunderstood and then misunderstanding these women, both in their context, but also in history. And so um, I put on my fiction hat because I'm also a novelist and I wrote their stories as close to the biblical narrative as I could with good research. And then I unpacked those stories for the readers who have been walking through misunderstanding like we all have
0: hmm mm-hmm. so you made this decision very early on that you were going to sort of begin with this fictional retelling uh and but then you're going to kind of unpack that more in the nonfiction sense that was something you
1: wanted to do from the very beginning yes that was the intense uh, intentional part of that book definitely
0: what do you think the value is in the fictional aspects how does that help the reader sort of gauge the cultural and the all of the context that goes along and you might miss out if you're just reading something that's nonfiction.
1: Right. And I think part of that is just as a storyteller, um, the question that I ask is what is it like to be in the sandals of that person? And so placing the reader in the sandals of that person um, and in through the power of a story helps them to empathize a little bit more and to actually ask some good questions um, that a story would bring up um, versus just me telling you this is the story of, but having you actually with characters, with dialogue, with with um, setting, which is very important in all of these stories. Uh, it helps people to go, oh my gosh, these aren't just characters in a book; these are actual human beings who lived that will probably meet someday. so it's just like you know when people say, oh, did you like writing about the characters?" I'm like, no, they're real people and I got the privilege of hopefully you know fleshing out their stories a little bit. And
0: I think that that is the trick and that's the, that's sort of the trick with all with, with all biblical fiction. Uh, obviously you're not writing anything that's novella length or novel length mm-hmm. very short stories just to sort of engage your mind and, and, and draw you in. Uh, one of the difficulties of writing biblical fiction is both remaining true to mm-hmm. what is known in Scripture, while also giving yourself the freedom to f- fill out the the parts of the narrative that would have been assumed by the original audience the things that they would have known the 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 cultural context the historical Mm -hmm. context just the things that you're not going to naturally get anymore or uh even we we read those passages and we interpret our own cultural Mm -hmm. context into the story and that leads to misunderstandings and poor interpretations What sort of research did you do to ensure that you were being truthful to the biblical narrative and to the world in which that story was set?
1: So the first thing that I do is I read the biblical narrative over and over and over and over again. And I just ask a lot of questions of myself and um, see what the context brings up for me. And then um, after I've done that, then I go ahead and do research, especially cultural and um you know geographical and things like that um and then when i'm setting the scene i i write it as it's written in the bible in terms of the chronolog the chronology mm-hmm. and then if dialogue is said then i use the exact words of the dialogue in in the story now i have the privilege or the i guess it's easier for me to do that in a short story than it would be like in a long you know biblical fiction that's 80,000 words, that would be hard. You would always be, you know, in conjecture, you'd always be making stuff up. But, um, in this case, I was lucky in that I was very close to the narrative and I was, any detail was just added for texture.
0: Mm-hmm. So you begin to draw together and these, these, I think there's 10 women in, in total mm-hmm. that you discuss, uh, how did you because obviously, I, when I'm when I'm reading this, I'm like, Oh, you could have, you know, you could have included this character, or I wonder what you would have said about this person. Uh, so you, you had to narrow it down to mm-hmm. just ten to fit in one book. Uh, how did you pick the ones that you did?
1: Well, um, I had written a book with a similar format with a co-author called The Day I Met Jesus. And so there were five women of the New Testament, so I already automatically knew I couldn't use them (laughs) since I've already written about them. Um, But really what what happened was it was when I was doing that rapid reading of scripture and I was seeing... Um, I was comparing the sermons that I had heard to the actual just boring, plain reading of the text. And I was finding that several of those women had either been misrepresented or just hadn't been fleshed out enough for me to really be satisfied. Um, And so those were the kind that I I decided to choose, the ones that kind of had... Maybe I'd heard preached weird or whatever. I wanted to definitely be like a Berean and go back to the Scripture and say, "Is this actually what's written?" And just ask those questions.
0: Now, I I don't need to give you just like list the ten that you had, but give us some examples of some of the the um, the figures that you're talking about who who misunderstood. Yeah.
1: yeah. So obviously Eve is a really important one. She's kind of the groundbreaking one, and we often think that everything rests on her shoulders. And actually, if you look at the narrative, it's, of course, it's equally placed upon hers and Adam's shoulders for the fall of humankind. Um, so she was just like a, you know, a linchpin, you have to talk about her, but there were, you know, more, uh, there were several sexual abuse victims, one of which was Bathsheba, um, and then jumping to the new Testament, um, Mary of Magdala, she has long been misunderstood in a historical context as a prostitute, but she's actually a woman who is demonized and delivered from demons. There's no, I mean, you could make a leap, but there's, it's a, it's a Pope error. <laughs> One of the earlier popes said that she was the same woman that put her hair on Jesus and washed his feet. Um, but there's not uh, a good case for that, but that has been going on for years and years and years. People still believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, just some of the one of the ones I thought was interesting was Naomi, who she doesn't get a lot of play in the Book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is like the heroine of that book, but I wanted to look and see what it's like to be a grieving person, and to give my readers permission that grieving is okay, and you can be sad and mad and all those things.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's go ahead and, and do that. Now, let's flesh out that story of Naomi. Um, so the background of that story uh, obviously, uh, begins with great loss. Um, talk to me a little bit about what her story is, why she's grieving and how you feel like she's been misunderstood.
1: Yes, So she lost her husband and then her two sons. And so, and she was, um, not in Israel at the time she was in a pagan area. And, uh, they had left Bethlehem because the, which is known as the house of bread, but there was a famine in the land. And so they had left. And then she goes to this foreign country. She loses all of her, you know, all of her progeny. So, um, husband, kids, uh, and so she's left with two daughters-in-law who don't have offspring. And in that culture, it means she's bereft. She, her bloodline is ended And so that's where we find her. She renames herself Mara. Her name is Naomi, but her she renames herself Bitter, which is um, unfortunate, but it makes sense for anyone that's walked through grief. They want to rename themselves. And then she, with Ruth, um, who sticks to her like glue, go back to the house of bread to Bethlehem, and that's where we pick up kind of the excitement of the story, where we learn about Boaz and and the kinsman redeemer and all of that. And we see at the end that she does have a bloodline that continues because of ruth's faithfulness and boaz's kindness and his hesed his loyal love to her um but that's kind of the the trajectory but what i want to focus on in that for the reader is that she was sad and she was broken and she could not see her way forward and yet the god of israel the god of her chose to make her story turn out well but she still had to walk the pathway of grief
0: mm-hmm. and even if we're talking about the story of Ruth the story gets it gets romanticized
1: yeah it gets, it's not very sexy actually right, right. there's you
0: know there's a lot <laughs> to this story that if you it, you know from the popular interpretation of it and interpretation might even be too elusive a term the popular yeah. understanding of it <laughs> Uh, is a lot different than the biblical narrative and even within the biblical narrative Naomi's story doesn't get a lot of play Uh, but what we see through that is the focus of the story of Ruth tends to be that look at how great everything turned out everything's amazing it's a redemption story. we love redemption we kind of push that grief and pain and lament off to the side uh But we do that in our daily lives today anyway. What do you think is the connection between like, like we interpret this story the way we do because of a way in which we feel about ourselves and our own lives. What can we learn from the grief of Naomi?
1: I think we get to learn that there's a reason there's so many lament Psalms in the Psalms (laughs) that she She was honest with God. She wept and and grieved and really didn't even want other people around her. Like It was amazing that Ruth decided to stay with her, but she was like, go ahead, go back to your people. You go find yourself a husband. And she was really, really broken. And I think that's where we need to give ourselves permission instead of just stuffing it. And I, I hate that. I wish I wish stuffing worked, honestly. I wish I could just stuff it down into a little compartment of my heart and then never revisit it again. But what we find is when you're grieving and we stuff it down, we pretend it didn't happen is it pops up in our behavior or it comes up in some sort of trigger and we'll have to revisit it over and over, kind of like regurgitation. We just have to keep revisiting. So it's actually better to lament and grieve in the moment than to have to carry it on through years and years and years because of stuffing.
0: Another another person that I wanted to talk about, uh, we mentioned her briefly, was Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. Because I think probably more so than any other of the women that you're talking about, uh, Bathsheba's story is very much misunderstood. And it really changes the whole outlook of how you perceive that narrative. Um, you hear her story mentioned as an affair, as adultery. Mm. There's the implication that you know she was culpable in Davidson, David's sin, participated in it. Uh, you are very clear that that is not the case. Uh, why? Why is that?
1: Well, I think you know we we do know about py- power dynamics today, and after the Me Too movement, we see it very clearly when someone's in a position of power um sexual abuse is uh, an abuse of power. Um and so we can in that lens in that new lens we can look back at that story and say well she really didn't have any sort of volition. She didn't have a choice in the matter. And um having been to Israel and having seen mikvahs and those are the ceremonial baths, she would have she would have been probably bathing for uh getting rid of her monthly um, you know, cycle uncleanliness, whatever. So not really a, a, you know, a seductive type of bathing. Um, But in the book, I talk about all the different choices that David makes along the way. Like he chooses not to go to war. He chooses to stand where he stood. He chooses to linger. He chooses to ask what her name is. He chooses to have her sent for. He chooses to kill her husband. I mean, he's making all of these choices. And when Nathan, the prophet confronts him, he tells the story of a little lamb and he never, never, never blames the lamb. He, he says, you are the man. And we even see it throughout the narrative of scripture, even in the genealogies where she's not even named Bathsheba. She's Uriah's wife, which just goes to show she was his wife. And um, the other thing I think is wild is here's this person that took something from you. You lose a child uh, because of it. And you also lose your husband and then you're, you're having to live with your husband's murderer. And there's no indication that she had like a terrible marriage or anything. She was probably grief stricken. So this is what I love to do in these kinds of stories is just to ask the question, how would I feel if, what if this was me, how would I feel?
0: Yeah. There's so much behind that. And yet what I, what I've seen is that we don't, That's not the way, that's not the popular understanding of the narrative. Why do you, why do you think that we've misunderstood this? What, what is the, what's the, what's the factor
1: there? It's a great question. I think because we know the whole story and we know that this is basically a story from David's point of view, and we've traditionally looked at it from his point of view, and we know that he's the man after God's own heart, and we know that he's in the lineage of the Messiah, that it's very uncomfortable to think that there's someone that would do that to a, a one of his subjects. Um, to, to his credit, he did confess it he did lament it. He did ask God, please don't kill the baby. I mean, he did all those things. So he did, he was a man after God's own heart. He did repent of what he did, but it's uncomfortable for us to say that David was, was a rapist. We just don't like that. It it doesn't fit with our hero narrative. Our hero narrative is hero is all good and 0% bad. But if you look at the biblical writings, there's only one that's 100% good, and that's Jesus. And so all of us are going to fall short. We can have heroic qualities, and we can also have these um, predatory qualities. The question becomes, what do we do when we're caught? And what do we do in the aftermath of that? And David repented, and I'm very grateful for that.
0: When I was reading the book, I I just kept reflecting on the fact that, that so many of the, the chapters, there's three explicitly, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Tamar, Mm -hmm. it all explicitly fall into the category of the the misinterpretation, the misunderstanding has something to do with their sexual behavior, their sexuality. Why do you think so many of our misrepresentations of women have to do with sexuality?
1: Another really insightful question. And I think a lot of us, I, I think In terms of misunderstanding, we have, especially with Rahab, she's called Rahab the harlot for her whole life. Like, I'm sure she's tired of hearing that, Um, but we can be marked by those things, whether something is done to us or we have done something that we regret. There's just something about sexual sin and sexual shame and sexual predation that are integrated into our personalities. And as a a sexual abuse survivor myself, it's been a long exercise of learning that I do bear the image of God and I am worthy of protection. And that's the primary misunderstanding in those contexts is that the men in those particular contexts did not see those women as image bearers of their creator. Had they seen them as image bearers, they would not have done what they did. And so, um, I think a lot of us, whether we're male or female, we have been misunderstood in this way when we're being taken advantage of, or we're being harmed. Someone is looking at us as a commodity or as something to overcome or something we want as a thing. And that is not the same as an image bearer of the most high God. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. A, A couple of years ago, you wrote a book called we too. Uh, Mm -hmm. how the church can respond redemptively to the sexual abuse crisis. So this is something that you've, you've reflected on previously. Obviously you Mm -hmm. just mentioned it's been a recovery has been a part of your own life. Uh, How much of your reflection on these biblical women's stories came from reflecting on the stories of abuse that we're grappling with as a church today?
1: Yeah, I am so grateful that um, the biblical narrative is there Um, when I looked this up, you know, when I started writing that other book, it was shocking to me, even though I'd read the Bible over and over and over again. Um, it was just shocking how many times they are it's mentioned and it's not mentioned as a prescriptive thing. It's not like, here's how to rape a woman. (laughs) It's not that way. It's, it's a descriptive thing. It says, this is what happened. And in the, especially in the old Testament, whenever there is that kind of sexual predation, the next thing that happens is war in almost a hundred percent of the cases, and so we see this as sexual violence begetting physical violence, and so by that in its in its nature, the Lord is showing us that this is not good, it is not right, and bad things happen in the aftermath of that.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, specifically the the rape of Tamar is
1: mm-hmm.
0: like like if you look at the narrative of David, uh, that is almost the center of the narrative Mm -hmm. and when when david fails to lead his family and to take care of his family and allows that to happen that also ends up leading to the downfall of the nation you know the it it creates enmity between the sons and Mm -hmm. (laughs) that like like it it is a major movement away from what you see the, the kingdom of israel being built that will immediately lead to within a generation the division of the kingdoms. Um, mm-hmm. So that it it highlights how crucial it is to uphold the value of women, to understand them as being made in the image of God, and really to make sure we get these stories right.
1: I agree. I think too. I wonder, and this is kind of an aside, but because he had done what he had done. I wonder if he was, you know, kind of like, I can't really say something here because I've done the same thing. You know, there's that shame involved and he didn't do anything. I mean, he really didn't do anything. Um, If anything, it was Absalom, her brother um, that actually avenged and did something about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you see, see, the like rise of the kingdom, you see the Bathsheba incident, and then you see the Tamar and it's just like this spiraling of sadness after that point. And the Lord's very clear, you know, there are consequences to our sinful behavior, but there's even more consequences to our predatory behavior.
0: One of the things that I've noticed, and, and this is, this is partially just because it's the way history has been, uh, but the, the core of these misunderstandings of, of these women, And you mentioned earlier that uh, Mary of Magdala, uh, her being a prostitute, completely comes from uh, the Pope. Um, (laughs) But you see that a lot of these traditional understandings of these women that that are incorrect uh, have their genesis in male theologians. Why do you think, and I, and I, I think that for myself, if I was going to answer this question, it just has to do with the male centeredness and sort of the patriarchal mindset that we've, we've mm-hmm. had throughout history. Uh, why do you think that male theologians through history have gotten it wrong or even, even to the point where they have not even considered an alternative?
1: Yeah, it's frustrating to me. And that's why I like to read a wide variety of theologians, um, people of color, minorities, women, um, because I feel like I've missed out. And, And please don't get me wrong. I love theologians and I love, you know, digging deeper into the word of God. And I know that there's a lot of great value there, but I think there's some blinders that have been on for years and years and years and that's why i wrote this book because one of the goals of the book is to cause people to fall in love with a plain reading of scripture of just simply reading the scripture because that's what happened to me i was like wait a minute that sermon i heard about david committing adultery or you know you know bathsheba being you know sexy on the roof um, i'm like that's not in there it's never mentioned that way and so that's where i get frustrated that Why it's important that we we just plainly read it and ask the ask great observation questions, because we're going to get so much from the Bible if we simply do that. Mm
0: -hmm. And and I think I would add to that is that pretty much every misconception that you list in the book is not something that is really seriously debated at the academic level. Uh, if you went to, to most modern theologians, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. most, most uh, you know, academic Bible teachers, if you were getting this information in seminary, uh, though, if you ask Old Testament scholars, their thoughts about these women, they would align exactly with what you have to say about them. So there's this gap between mm-hmm. popular understanding yeah. and actual researched historical understanding. Obviously, books like yours help to draw those things closer together. Uh, What else can we do to correct misunderstandings like this that are based in tradition and not actually based in, like you said, just a clear reading of scripture?
1: I think that's where we get back to being a Berean and searching the scriptures and not being lazy Christians and just hearing a sermon and absorbing it and then believing 100% of it. And whether that sermon is on a podcast, whether that sermon is on the air, on TV, in our church, in our local context, we are tasked with searching the scriptures and making sure that our biblical theology is actually just that it, it, it fits back and forth and you see the connections through the old and new testament. and It's just really important. Um, I, I don't think it, I don't think we grow well when we're lackadaisical readers of the, of the word of God.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think when did this book release it? Has it been out yet? Just, Um,
1: just about a week.
0: week Okay. (laughs) I read, I read an advanced copy, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, a month and a half ago. So Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't, Claire on that, because I was going to ask you how you felt like the book has been received since it's been released, Uh, but I guess you don't, (laughs) you're you're just getting those initial feelers back, Um, so I'll I'll ask this question instead, you, the book is now out there, Um, what has been the initial reaction to it?
1: Yeah, great question. I have a launch team. And so they have, like you got the book early and were able to read it. Um, and I've been surprised, like a lot of people really, really resonated with Naomi. And I was surprised that 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 she was it, but then I thought, you know, we've been through a pandemic. <laughs> and I think a lot of us are grieving. And so that makes a lot of sense to me. And also that a lot of women who are reading it did not put two and two together about Bathsheba that she was, you know, they'd always heard that she had, she had culpable part of that um, predation and uh, it like is blowing their minds that perhaps she didn't. (laughs) So um, those are the two like big ones. And, and also I think there's the Proverbs 31 Mm -hmm. woman who um, that story is the, the audience for that story is men, but we've read it as some sort of manual of Christian womanhood. <laughs> so uh, there's just a lot of things that people just didn't know. And I think that makes me super happy that I could just in my plain reading of scripture can bring out some things for folks.
0: What is it that you hope if someone just can, you know, take away one piece of this book? Uh, what do you hope they take away from it?
1: Besides that kind of igniting of love of scripture and really, you know, diving into the story of scripture, the other would be that when we're misunderstood. Um, we are not called to be the micromanagers of our reputation, that there, sometimes the Holy Spirit says you should speak up. And a lot of times he says, be quiet and that God holds our reputation in his hands. Being misunderstood is so hard and it's easy to talk about it rather than just entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. And so I hope that people come away with tools of, okay, I'm walking through misunderstanding right now. Here's what these biblical women can teach me because they've been through it.
0: Mm-hmm. that's so great uh well mary thank you for taking time uh out of your day to be on the podcast again the book is the most misunderstood women of the bible uh it is a eye-opening uh if you have never seriously considered these women or if you've only just been like oh yeah i know what these stories are uh read this book because you might find that um mm. i don't even want to say your mind will be changed but your mind will be opened mm. to maybe something you haven't considered before
1: Thank you so much. It's been great to be on. I appreciate it.